So I have the million dollar question talking about sleep, and I probably should ask you this sooner. Mm -hmm. The million dollar question is you as a sleep expert who speaks all over the world, how many hours do you get a night? What's your number? What's sure. your goal when you're like, if I get this, I'm going to be really good to function? Sure. So, so my ideal duration of sleep it is, is eight hours. So even though the typical adult seven to nine hours is what's acceptable, I know that when I'm getting consistently less than eight hours, I'm not at my top performance. So pe people will be like, I don't notice any difference, but I'm like, I'm slower to the gun. I definitely have more word finding difficulty and things like that. And so I really do try to always get that eight hours of sleep, um, but at minimum seven and a half. That seven hours, I might as well get four because I just am a mess. Hey, friends. Friends, it's the Ryan Lecky Show. Welcome to the Ryan Lecky Show. Hey fam, what is going on? I am super pumped for this episode of the Ryan Lecky Show. Hopefully it puts the pep in your step. And even though the whole show is helping you hopefully get the best sleep of your life, you're not gonna snooze on it, right? Absolutely So not. with me, I'm so excited because we've been talking about getting you on as a guest for quite some time. You're insanely busy. She is not only a pediatric neurologist, she's a sleep expert. You are literally the Swiss army knife of sleep because you help with kids and adults. You have this special training that you're one of not a lot of people in the whole country. And mm -hmm. I'm so excited you're here because I am literally obsessed with sleep. I follow your social media channels and I'm like, oh my God, listen to that latest research. So the one and only Dr. Anne-Marie Morse, how you doing? I'm doing great. And I am so excited to be here. I mean, we now have known each other how many years? A number of years. Yeah, and- And I've called you with problems <laughs> like, hey, I think I slept five minutes le uh, less than usual last night. Is it a problem? Should I check myself? And you're like, slow your roll, Lecky. Exactly. But let's back into some of just your credentials in your day-to-day, -day, right? Sure. Because as I mentioned, you are like the Swiss army knife of all things sleep. Yes. Um, But your day job, you work where and what do you do? So we could talk about sort of your medical background. Yeah, sure. So I'm with Geisinger Medical Center. And so I'm the director of child neurology and pediatric sleep medicine. Um, and I wear many hats there at Geisinger. I'm, I'm very fortunate to be at a center that is very, very supportive of recognizing that I want to do a lot of things. My goal is to transform medicine, to really meet patients where their needs are and really make a big difference. So I get to work as a program director for child neurology residency program. I work in education, both with our medical school, which is up here in Scranton as well, our Geisinger uh, Commonwealth School mm -hmm. of Health Sciences now. Um, and my background, although many people may be going, well, I'm not a kid. She doesn't have anything relevant to say. Slow your roll. Um, <laughs> I actually am an adult neurologist with special qualifications in child neurology. And my area of expertise is specifically in rare sleep disorders like narcolepsy, idiopathic hypersomnia, Klein-Levin syndrome. Um, and so in those conditions, I do see adults and pediatric patients. And I want to stress, because I love to brag about you after I get off the phone. I'm like, you know who I just talked to? <laughs> You're like one of three dozen certain sleep specialists in the country. So yeah. what does that involve? So, so most sleep specialists um, tend to be pulmonologists, so lung doctors. And then um, many are adult sleep specialists. Um, because I'm a child neurologist and sleep specialist, that puts me in a very, very small category of sleep specialists. So there's probably only a few dozen in the country who actually have the, the credentials or the training that I have um, as a pediatric neurologist and sleep medicine specialist. Yeah, so before you stop the podcast now, if your kid can't sleep, she's the person <laughs> call, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Just check me out at Geisinger. All right. I love this. All right. So Dr. Amory Morse, we have so much to dive into because I am like obsessed with sleep, especially now that, you know, in my new chapter, I don't have to get up at two in the morning yes. or, or midnight. Yes. And I'm, I'm all about the, I want people to know too, the takeaway, we want to just not bury the lead. This is not going to be a, a podcast on like, she's going to tell you to lower the temperature in your room yes. and do like all the stuff everyone yeah. else has told you. Cause we yeah. have a lot to unpack because sleep science is consistently evolving. Mm -hmm. You travel all over the world for sleep mm -hmm. conferences. You yep. study the latest research. Yes. Um, I follow you on all social media and you're dropping all these knowledge bombs. So let's talk first about um, just like the myths in general with sleep now, right? I feel like finally sleep is getting more attention um, than it ever did before, right? Sure. There was Ariana Huffington's book she came out with, The yep. Sleep Revolution, that really showed high-power executives like the founder of Amazon and people mm -hmm. who founded Apple, like focusing on making sure they're getting eight hours of sleep a night yep. for better decision-making, et cetera. Yeah. Tell me now, where does the sleep story stand around the world, and why do you think people are starting to pay more attention to it and getting away from you can sleep when you're dead? Exactly. So first and foremost, I very commonly hear that statement exactly of you can sleep when you're dead. And so then I just cite 
the, re, uh, the research and state, well, you're just going to get there a lot sooner, so you're going to have all the rest in the world. Uh, so <laughs> the reality is, is that I think the reason why there's increased attention to sleep is because it's become so omnipresent. The dysfunction in sleep across the United States is only growing. Um, so if you look historically in the 1960s when there was the census data looking at what was the average amount of sleep that an adult got, it was eight and a half hours of sleep. If you look at it now, it's 6.8 hours, and the recommendation for most adults is seven to nine hours. So the reality is we're seeing that there's more and more people who are getting less and less sleep. Um, in 2014, a CDC said, you know what? Sleep disorders in the United States is in epidemic proportions. This is a major public health crisis. We need to do something different. At that time, one in five adults were expected to have a sleep disorder. We now are seeing that those numbers are approximating one in two to one in three adults. And so the older you get, the more medical complexity or psychiatric complexity that you have. So if you have another medical condition, you have diabetes, you have heart conditions, you have seizure disorder, you have headaches, the likelihood of you having a sleep disorder skyrockets. And although many times we'll think about that as, oh, it's a nicety to be able to get a good night's rest. The reality is if you have any of those named conditions and you have a sleep disorder, that sleep disorder makes it harder for us to actually make your outcomes better. You're going to have worsened control of your blood sugars if you have diabetes. You're going to have higher blood pressures if you have high, high blood pressure. You're going to have more likely um, difficult control seizures if you have epilepsy. You have headaches, you're going to be missing a lot more days of work or school because of that sleep disorder contributing to a more difficult time to control those things. So where we're at now is recognizing that research is consistently demonstrating it's not a nicety for you to get a good night's rest. It is a requirement. This is a homeostatic process, something your body must do in order for you to be your optimal physical, mental, cognitive, emotional, behavioral self. And so therefore ignoring it is the biggest mistake that you can ever make. I love listening to you. I can like <laughs> run through a brick wall when you talk. I know the first time I ever met you, I'm like, this lady gets it. I'm like jacked. I want to go to sleep right now. <laughs> Not right, not, now. Right now. not right now. Not right now. Because we have but. a lot more information to uh, tackle. But okay, so let's peel back the curtain though. First, when people hear this, like, what is the red flag we need to look for when you're like, maybe I have a sleep disorder? Is sure. it consistently sleeping less than seven, less than six? Like, sure. tell me some of the warning signs. So I think one of the big mistakes that people people develop is this obsessionality over duration alone. And the reality is that when we're thinking about sleep, I generally invite people to think about it in buckets. Do you have the right duration? That's one piece, right? And recognizing duration changes over time. The younger you are, the more sleep you need. The older you are, we start to reduce the number of hours. And we'll go into that a little bit more later. The second is, are you having the right timing of your sleep? Are you going to bed too early in the day, too late in the day? Is it super irregular? Sometimes you're sleeping at 9, sometimes you're sleeping at 2 a.m. And then the final piece is quality quality of your sleep? Are you waking up feeling refreshed? Are you tossing and turning, frustrated at night? Are you having um, difficulty being able to fall asleep? But also the quality of your day. Are you finding that you find a struggle in being able to keep your eyes open? Are you finding that you're having a different cognitive function? You feel like it's taking you longer to be able to process things, react to things. Are you more irritable, volatile? Things that normally wouldn't irritate you or frustrate you, you now are snapping and you're ready to bite someone's head off. I can tell you on the weeks when I'm on call, it's a lot harder for me to kind of keep my even keel when things are pressure mounting, right? And so if those are some of the things that you're seeing, then those are your immediate call to action. The flip side is, as I mentioned earlier, if you're a person who has medical or psychiatric diagnoses, take a look at your sleep. The reason being that you become much, much higher risk for a sleep disorder. For instance, you're a person who has atrial fibrillation. That's a condition where the top of my heart doesn't pump effectively like this. It kind of does a quivering. In November of 2020, the American College of Cardiology had said, if you have this condition, you have to get a sleep test. Not ask questions about your sleep or anything else. Get a sleep test. Why? Because you have a very high likelihood, almost 80 to 85% will have obstructive sleep apnea. And when left untreated, it makes your AFib harder to control. You get the surgery to ablate it, make it go away. You have OSA, you don't treat it, you're gonna go right back into that atrial fibrillation. So there are the calls to action of journal about your sleep. 
They're getting the duration, getting the quality, getting the timing. What's the quality of your day? But then do you have some of these medical conditions? Do you have heart conditions? Do you have hormone conditions? Do you have neurologic conditions? Make sure then you're really thinking about is sleep optimized so that these conditions are optimized. And are home sleep studies now becoming more popular thing where they're hooking up to devices? Because back in the day, I had one like I was like 12 years ago. It was part of like sure. a story I did. But oh my God, you can't sleep in these sleep centers. So like they're trying to make it more natural, right? Sure. So so one of the challenges is that when you look at the dynamic of what are we studying when we bring you in a lab versus what are we studying when we're looking at you at home, um, very frequently we're boiling it down to only looking at how you're breathing, right? Um, and the reason for that is because a lot of times we're thinking about these sleep studies to be able to say, does someone have sleep apnea or not? The challenge is, is that when we bring someone into a lab, there's so much more information we're collecting that actually can give us much more insights to your overall sleep mm -hmm. health. Now, when we do these home tests, what that gets at is yeah, the yes or no of is sleep apnea present. However, one of the things I'll state is if you were to scientifically assess that, there's sensitivity, meaning the ability to actually capture all of the people who would have it is lower than what we would have in the lab because we're not getting all that same information. However, it helps us get access to people much more quickly. And this becomes even more important when we're talking about things like what we call healthcare islands. You're in an area of the country where getting to a lab is four hours away. Me being able to mail you a test that you can do that will approximate and give me a yes, no, helps me get you care faster. It doesn't give me the precision of care that I would like to have. And, and I think in future state, we may get there. But I think both are definitely still necessary. We find right now the reason that we're doing the home testing more is not only to increase access, but also, unfortunately, insurance is dictating the practice of many physicians because it's cheaper yeah. for them to um, pay for. And so, therefore, they are more likely to say, you need to step through this test, even if we say it's not the right test or there's other things that we need to look at. So I think both are going to continue to be needed, but you're right. There's a growing, it's a growing field in general with every home sleep evaluation that you can think of. Now, when I told people on social media I was going to be interviewing you for this podcast, one of the resounding questions people always ask, snoring, right? My spouse snores. Is snoring indicative of an issue or serious problem that should be treated? Let's talk, or is that a natural thing people do? Sure, so snoring is not natural, it's not normal. And so it's one of the things that very frequently people will dismiss, oh, it's just a snoring. Um, and it's funny because a few years ago I had given a, a lecture at the American Academy of Sleep Medicine's um, uh, national conference. And I had, um, it was actually on parasomnias. Um, which, which is what? Which is these behaviors, so things like sleepwalking, sleep talking, okay, sleep it. eating behaviors, things like that. Um, and um, I had started the, the talk with actually Billy Joel's River of Dreams song. And people were like, what's going on here? She's playing a music video to play to start this. But the next slide I went into was the historical context of obstructive sleep apnea. And in the early 1900s, there was a newspaper article that basically said that um, at this point, snoring is considered like a comedic um, uh, uh, kind of experience. People kind of laugh at it because people are like, yeah, right? Yeah. It's a comedic thing. However, it really, it demands the attention because it is causing not only a burden on the individual, likely a medical burden, but it's causing significant social burden, even a cause for divorce, right? And so it's true. It does cause a, a significant breakdown in relationships because the significant partner can't sleep, right? If, if I'm snoring, my husband's going to be like putting a pillow over my head, yeah. right? Um, and so uh, what we've learned is that snoring is, is a sign that there may be upper airway obstruction, right? Um, meaning that when I'm breathing, I should not be making any noises. If I'm sitting here talking to you and I'm breathing, I'm making noises, all, all that by itself is telling you there's a problem with your airway dynamics, right? So if a person is sleeping and they're starting to snore, it's telling me that there's a problem with airway dynamics. That by itself does not say 100% of the time that you have obstructive sleep apnea, but it is a sign of obstructive sleep apnea. So some would say, okay, now I go and get the sleep test. Do I have obstructive sleep apnea? I don't have obstructive sleep apnea. It's just snoring. I don't need to worry about it. Well, we're now having emerging evidence to say that that may not be the truth either. So some of the data that we have from the adult population is people with just what we call primary snoring. They don't have sleep apnea. We did the test. You don't meet the numbers. 
but you're snoring. What we find is they actually have more atherosclerosis in their carotid arteries. So atherosclerosis is that clogging of the arteries. What, why is that not good? That means I'm not getting adequate blood flow to my brain. That's going to increase my risk for things like stroke. It's going to increase my risk for other cognitive issues, et cetera. In children, what have we found? We have found that children with primary snoring, they don't have sleep apnea, they're just the snorers. They actually have worse behavioral and cognitive outcomes than their age-matched peers without any snoring or any sleep disorders. And so it's not as benign as just an inconvenience noise. It is demonstrating that there's airway dynamic issues and it's not something normal that we should be doing. So if a partner identifies you snoring constantly, right? Yeah. Starting to impact your relationship or just people, I mean, you need to talk to your primary care doctor and say, 100%. like, what's the next step? What do you recommend? Because I think maybe some people are worried, what if my PCP dismisses this? Yeah. And, and this unfortunately is not an uncommon thing because um, the same as when I talk to people who are sleepy and they go, well, sleepiness is normal. Well, sleepiness isn't normal. It's common doesn't make it normal. And so therefore they go to your doctor, say, I'm sleepy. Oh, it's normal. Get more rest. You're snoring. Oh, well, lay on your side. Um, what I would say is that if you go to your PCP, have the discussion that I'm concerned about my snoring. I think I may have a sleep disorder. And uh, the first step would be potentially seeing a sleep physician. Um, if you have difficulties getting into a sleep physician, an alternative would also be potentially seeing an ear, nose, and throat doctor. Why? Because if I have airway dynamic challenges that's caused Causing my snoring, they may find you have a deviated septum, you have large tonsils, adenoids, you have something else that can be modified to improve that breathing dynamic. Now, with that said, I would still encourage to get the sleep study before you had any breathing dynamic changes. Why? Because if there's sleep apnea, it may improve the breathing dynamics. It may not make the sleep apnea go away. And so therefore, we then need to look at what are your other options to have how you could be treated. Now, we were joking saying, oh my gosh, if I'm constantly snoring, my spouse is going to hit me with the pillow or right or divorce me, right? Yeah. There is such a thing that made buzz in, gosh, the news probably several years ago, sleep divorces, 100%. right? So what, I want you to define a sleep divorce. Have sure. you maybe encouraged some patients to take it? Because I'll, I'll explain my experience with that, but sure. define what a sleep divorce is so people understand it and why it might be important for couples. Yeah. So, so sleep divorces, typically what happens is that most couples are going to sleep together in their bed, queen size, king size, whatever uh -huh. size bed. Um, and because of one of the partner's sleep habits, they end up starting to sleep in separate rooms. Now, clearly, there are significant implications there. If I'm not sleeping in the same room as you, that means that I'm also not sleeping <laughs> in the same room as you. And so therefore it creates a decrease in intimacy that is going to create an emotional separation. So there are some negative consequences that come along with that. Um, in fact, when we see the sleep divorces, that very frequently can become a, also a precursor of people actually getting real separations and divorces because of the fact that that is a really important time for, for intimacy and, and some private time for couples. Now, it is sometimes necessary. So there are sometimes periods where one person may be going through something that they really do need to have a separate room, right? So examples of that wouldn't necessarily be the snoring sleep apnea person, but maybe there was something traumatic where a person now is having recurrent nightmare disorder, and they really need to change their environment in order to help them to kind of deal with whatever that trauma is and facilitate the healing. And, and perhaps being in that same room is reinforcing that experience. That wouldn't be the end-all be-all, but it might be the in-between to being able to, one, gain control of how do we get you back to good quality sleep and then bring you back into your bed so you can also reassociate your bed with a safe place to be able to sleep without those nightmares. And I got to say, from a sleep divorce standpoint, when I was getting up, you know, in my last career at midnight, sometimes 2 a.m., sure. my partner and I had a sleep divorce, right? Because sure. we knew a sleep divorce was the thing that was going to save the relationship yeah. because I was going to bed at six o'clock at night for 21 years. Yep. He was coming in at 830 or nine. I'm a light sleeper. You like so much scratch your nose. I'm like, whoosh. I'm like a coon hound. I'm up, right? Yeah. Like I'm ready to go. Yep. And when I woke up at 2 a.m. and my alarm went off, it would wake him up. Sure. Then when I would leave in the garage door, it would wake him up again. But it was just this yep. cycle, right? Yep. So I think for people, shift workers, et cetera, and yeah. we found, you know, we sleep, I sleep better. I don't want, I don't even have my dog in the room. What's your sure. thoughts really quick? Pets in the room when you sleep. Because sure. we give our dog his own bedroom because I've read so much sleep research about yeah. like animals yeah. in the bedroom. Go yeah. ahead. What do you say? So, so 
this is a point of contention in my household because my husband is a big dog person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, uh, I love our pets, um, but I, I do not want the animals sleeping in our bed or in our room. Um, I've lost that bet. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh. So yes, the sleep doctor okay. lost, but the compromise is, is that um, the dog doesn't isn't allowed into bed until I actually leave. So I wake up earlier than my husband, yeah. and so I'll let the dog in after I get up. I mean, my uh, dog would even scratch his ear at night, and I'm like, I'm, yeah. up, I'm like, this can't work. Yeah, but the other pieces that I think people need to be considerate of also is that there are different allergens and things that are going to also be in your bed, mm-hmm. and so um, uh, with that, you're your, your dog may make it more difficult for you to sleep because of those things. In addition, animals, especially cats and dogs, have different sleep cycles than humans. And so a cat especially wakes up much more frequently in the night. Even though we think about them as always sleeping, they just have um, more more sleep cycles across the yeah. day. And so those are pieces. So we generally, one of the things I'll tell you, I ask every patient on a fr- initial intake is um, about their sleep environment. I'll ask, do you sleep with anyone? Do you have your own room? Um, I ask them about um, what the light and the sound and, and all that. Pets. Do you have any pets that sleep in bed with you? And and I also will ask, do you have any pets in your room? Because sometimes with the kids, they're like, oh, I have a hamster, I have this, yeah, I have, yeah. and they have something else in the room that has a completely different circadian cycle that even though they're not in the bed, they're all of a sudden on their little wheel or something else, and that's waking them up from sleep. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, I think that's some stuff people probably don't think about. No, definitely So, But not. if you had your choice as a sleep expert, would you say no animals in the bedroom? 100%. Let's talk about phones in the bedroom. Sure. Sure. So phones in a bedroom, I think it depends on what your your because uh, everyone's personal... like, I need it for my alarm, and yeah. I'm guilty of that. And then we're going to talk about wearables because I got a million questions from people about tracking your sleep and yeah. all this other stuff. But let's talk phones in the bedroom. Yeah. Right. I think it really depends on your own um, personal control from reaching for the phone. Right. What I mean by that is most people are guilty of that. I'm not going to look at my phone. I'm not going to. And then they put their head on the pillow and they go, Did I answer that email? Did I? Let me, let me just check. And so what we do, we go and we grab it and we start looking. And then what happens when I look at that email? I now I'm going on to my Instagram and I'm going on to, and so you end up in a scrolling world, right? You go down the rabbit hole. Exactly. And so that ends up being the bigger dynamic. Um, uh, Many times if we're talking about kids, we usually will tell them, keep it outside of the room because they just don't have any impulse control, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to keep grabbing it. Um, I do agree with you. Many people are utilizing it as um, as an alarm alarm clock. clock. And one of the challenges for myself is that as a physician, um, everything is through my phone now. So it's an encrypted phone that my pagers through it, my everything is through it. So I have to always have it in my room because my pager goes off, that's my phone, right? Um, but but it, you're right that it's most optimal to try and remove that temptation because most of us are guilty of it. We wake up in the middle of the night and we're like, oh, I feel like I can't go back to sleep. And people will grab those bad habits and they yeah. start, oh, I, I'll do this until I feel tired. And it's two hours later and they're wide awake. So I have the million dollar question talking about sleep and I probably should ask you this sooner. Mm-hmm. The million dollar question is you as a sleep expert who speaks all over the world, how many hours do you get a night? What's your number? What's sure. your goal when you're like, if I get this, I'm going to be really good to function. Sure. So so my ideal duration of sleep it is, is eight hours. So even though the typical adult seven to nine hours is what's acceptable, I know that when I'm getting consistently less than eight hours, I'm not at my top performance. So pe- people will be like, I don't notice any difference, but I'm like, I'm slower to the gun. I definitely have more word finding difficulty and things like that. And so I really do try to always get that eight hours of sleep, um, but at minimum seven and a half. That seven hours, I might as well get four because I just am a mess. What's your advice to people running companies making big decisions. So really knowing what their what their chronotype is, I think is Let's the talk most about important. those. So what um, is a chronotype? So chronotype is what is your optimal performance or your preference of when you think you have the most optimal performance. So there is morningness and eveningness and then there are some people who are just net neutral. They're kind of like middle of the day people. I'm a morningness person. So uh, you would call me kind of that early lark versus the night owl. I'm I'm a lark. Yeah. I'm the lark with you. Exactly. And so for me, I know that if you want my best performance, you better talk to me first thing in the morning. If you're talking to me after five, even fried, right? Fried. I'm like, 
talk to me tomorrow morning. So I actually, I'd, I'd recently posted a video about Jeff Bezos, right? Mm -hmm. You want to talk about someone who's incredibly successful. The founder of Amazon. This this man post um, was, was doing an interview and he had described that um, he does not start his day until 10 a.m. So before 10 a.m., between 8 and 10 a.m., that's his family time, but his first meeting's at 10 a.m. He said, so if you're my 10 a.m. meeting, that means you're the most important meeting of the day. He's like, if I cancel you as a 10 a.m. meeting, he's like, to reschedule you. He's like, that's because you're my most important meeting. He's like, and I wasn't ready for you for some reason or another or something else came up. Yeah. He's like, if you're my 5 p.m. meeting, I'm sorry, but you're probably not that important. <laughs> but that's so true, right? Yeah. Like when your brain power is at its best. A hundred percent. And everybody is different though, right? Because some people, what were the middle people or the night people? So some people function really better in the afternoon. Yes. So those are kind of your net neutrals. And so there are definitely people who they're like, you're not going to get me at my best in the morning, and I'm definitely not a, a late night person. But you get me between kind of that that 11, 12, 1, 2 period, you get my your best version of me, right? There's other people like my husband, and, and this is interesting because you were describing something similar. My husband is is the night owl. So when I first met my husband, because he owns his own business, um, uh, I was a resident in um, in New York, a first year resident, and so I was waking up four or five o'clock in the morning and. I, and I wouldn't get my first text from him in a day sometimes until one o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm like, what were you doing? And it would be a cause for a fight because I'm like, I've been up now for like seven hours. Yeah. What have you been doing? Yeah. And he's like, well, I just woke up. And I'm like, what do you mean you just woke up? Like, what are you yeah. doing? Yeah. But it was also because he wasn't going to bed until one, two, three o'clock at night. So he had a very, he had that very delayed sleep onset and is very much the night owl. We now have gotten to the point, especially because of kids, where we now have a, a closer approximation of the same day and night. But he's a person where if you want his best version, that's going to be the later in the day. He's much, I mean, he's always pretty And meanwhile, quick, you're like me at five o'clock. I'm like, please just leave me alone. I don't want to talk to anybody. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So let's exactly. come back to, we talked about phones in the bedroom, right? We had to hit that technology, wearables, everywhere we go. I am guilty of this. I want to track my steps. How many steps did I hit today? But then we're also tracking our sleep. So watches, right? I wear an Apple watch. Yep. Started wearing it to bed because I knew we were going to chat too. And I'm like, I can't wait to show her all the sleep data, right? <laughs> Uh, good or bad idea? What it, What's your take? So it, it really is one of these things, again, where, where I kind of sit on the fence and say it depends. Um, uh, so sometimes it's information overload. And what I can also see is people who develop sleep disorders because they become obsessional with the data they're collecting. Oh, my gosh. I hope that's and, not me. Okay. <laughs> and so they're like, oh, my goodness. My, my sleep score was at 86%, and now it's a 62%. What do I need to do different? And I'm like, I don't even know what that means. Like, that's not a, that's not a real thing. Um, or it's saying that I'm not getting enough of my deep sleep and I'm not getting enough of this REM sleep. Again, that's not a real thing, right? Like the, the, the approximation of what these devices are able to do are good for being able to say, we can give you a gross approximation of your patterns. Like you likely go to lay down at this time. You likely fall asleep at this time. You likely get about this much sleep and wake up at this time. Um, they're not going to give you that nailed down, you precisely went to sleep, your uh, your brain started going into non-REM one at right. 9.02 and you woke this many times. It gives us a good approximation. The way that those are helpful is for people who they're going, I want to try and realign my sleep. I want to try and elongate my sleep. I'm actively trying to make something different. Um, I think that where we're at right now is that a lot of people are collecting this information and even if it's good or bad, they start to get desensitized to it as well. So you go in two, two extreme buckets, the one who become obsessional and cause a dysfunction, and then the other who they're like, yeah, it's been telling me I've been horrible sleep for like three years now. It's like... That's just who I am. And so they normalize it, right? Um, and so I think that it really is utilizing this information in a context that you really need to be mindful of, is it being beneficial to you or is it actually creating dysfunction for you that is not helpful? So you were, obviously you mentioned you were a resident in New York City, right? Mm -hmm. When you were doing all of that stuff, all your medical training. Yeah. And I know there was times probably where you weren't getting your eight hours oh, of yeah, sleep. Oh, yeah, no. But what are your, what's your message? Because even people on my team, right, early 20s, the people stay out till midnight, sure. 1 a.m., then they're up at 5 or 6, right, for sure. a shoot. 
I mean, does that does that type of effect now compound for things later in your life, or what's your message to the people still trying to live like they're in college? Sure. So, I mean, um, we now have mounting research that demonstrates that. Um, and I'm looking around. I'm like telling the team, like, <laughs> everyone, pay attention to this. We now have enough research that demonstrates that um, uh, total duration of sleep, consistency of less than six hours, is associated with all all cause um, increases in mortality and morbidity. Mm -hmm. So every cause of something that can kill you is increased for people who are consistently getting less than six hours of sleep, right? Wow. And so I do think many times we kind of develop this mindset of I can get away with four hours of sleep, five hours of sleep, six hours of sleep. And yeah, that might be true for a day, but when you start to do that consistently and you develop this mindset of I can get away with it, what you actually have done is fooled yourself. You fooled yourself into accepting a lesser version of you during the day. Right? Whoa, that was a knowledge bomb. Wow. So you're saying getting less sleep and thinking because you function through the day, mm -hmm. you're ultimately showing up as a lesser version of yourself. Because you now are not going to have the same cognitive performance. You're not going to have the same speed, accuracy, your impulsivity, et cetera. And so now you've accepted that perhaps if you were a person who when you were getting the, your age appropriate number of hours of sleep, yeah. so let's say eight hours is your sweet spot that you would have been able to master completing five tasks and they would have been like, I'm super proud of these. Where now, because you're getting done with six hours, you're barely getting by with doing three tasks, but that was what was accept like expected of me. And so therefore that's fine. Or that you now are a person who's more likely to overeat because of the fact that I have hormonal dysfunction, you do have changes in hormones called leptin and ghrelin that are gonna make you have more food-seeking behavior, feel, feel less full, yeah. choose less healthy foods. But now that's just who I am. I like potato chips. I like these sugary foods. And so you start to accept this because that now has normalized for you, where when you actually start restoring your sleep and appreciate the version of you on better quality duration timing of sleep, you go, oh my goodness, it is the most common thing that I meet. I was literally just on a meeting this week with a top level executive from a very um, uh, influential investment firm. And he had said, he because I'm speaking at an event for, for that he's supporting. And he goes, I had never realized how important sleep was. He's like, when I was in New York and I'm on the stock exchange and I'm doing all these guys and, and we're working 90, 100 hour weeks and we're all like, oh yeah, we're making millions of dollars, blah, blah. He's like, it was not until I, I left that scene, started getting sleep and went, oh my God, this is life. This is life. Like this is, this is what it feels like to feel good. And so many times people don't appreciate the compromise that they've made in their life by getting away with less sleep. It's, it's just the knowledge bombs everywhere. I'm just sitting, I could listen to you all. This is incredible. Let's now let's dive a little bit deeper now, right? So the standard everybody said, like, oh, you need seven to nine hours, right? Everything is different per age. 100%. I'm fascinated by people maybe in their 70s who sleep maybe five or six and they function like at their top level. Sure. But I couldn't do that. I mean, my anything less than eight, I'm like a hot mess. Sure. Right. But like, why is that? As we age, what happens? So, sure. So, so really, when you're thinking about sleep, right? If you were to just, what is sleep? Sleep is a neurologic process, right? And so, if we talked about neurologic processes, we're talking about the brain. And therefore, the brain is not a static thing, right? When you're in utero developing, you're starting to create synapses, connections within the brain. You're starting to create, create um, uh, some of the myelin, which is the protection around the delivery system of those synapses. When you're born, that brain isn't the same brain that you're going to have at one year, three year, five years, right? And so when you think about what are your expectations, you're expecting neurodevelopmental changes, right? You're expecting that that brand new baby who can't do anything is going to ultimately be able to start crawling, walking, talking, going to school, driving, get married, have a job, do all these things. That is a reflection of brain development. And so therefore, when you look at sleep, there's going to be that same type of developmental trajectory. And so when we think about sleep, sleep is a very, very critical, critical component of all those milestones I've just described. So when we talk about the learning process, right, how we acquire new knowledge 
It is acquisition, consolidation, retrieval. Acquisition occurs on a daytime, right? People who are listening to your podcast right now or watching this are, are acquiring some new knowledge, hopefully. When we send them a test next week to ask them what they learned, <laughs> that will be the retrieval. Consolidation is occurring on a night-by-night -night basis. And for years, we've had these dynamics of going, how does that all happen? Is it long-term potentiation, meaning that there's a positive reinforcement of the things that we just learned? Is it a synaptic pruning, meaning I'm getting rid of all the garbage I don't need? Well, we now know it's a combination. We also now know that the different stages of sleep also contribute to different forms of learning. And so the whole night really does make a big difference. So why do I give that whole description to answer your question. When I'm talking about that brand new baby in that first year of life, that baby knows nothing. Every time his eyes are open, that's a brand new opportunity to learn something new, acquire new knowledge. So therefore, he needs a whole lot more sleep than the person who's 75, right? So they need 14 to 17 hours of sleep, but it's not consolidated at night. It is fragmented across the day. And that's by design because I need to be awake, learn something new, consolidate it, go to sleep, wake up, learn something new, and do those stepping stones. By age of five, we're gonna see that daytime napping go away. We're gonna see our night consolidated, right? And then we see that by the time that we get to 18 years of age, we went from that 14 to 17 hours of sleep to now needing seven to nine hours. In the geriatric population or 65 and older, really it's still it's a seven to eight hour window, maybe not nine. But we see that because of these developmental changes in the brain, that there's less of this pressure of needing more sleep because there's less to consolidate, but also because of the fact that we're now on the opposite end. We went from a neurodevelopmental trajectory to now we're on a neurodegenerative trajectory. And so some of those individuals who are getting that five hours sleep, although they might look like they're doing all right, those individuals very frequently are on the high-speed pathway to mild cognitive impairment, dementias, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, etc. And so therefore, again, looking at that and making sure we're optimizing it is very much neuroprotective and cognitively protective. And playing off what you said, not getting enough sleep deprivation. You talk a lot about it. Yeah. What do you want people to know about it? So a lot of people will think about sleep deprivation in a variety of ways. So some people think about it as absolute sleep deprivation. I didn't get any sleep at all one night. Um, the thing that we don't necessarily always think about is that sleep deprivation also comes in a form of I can do some fragmentation of my sleep and have selective reduction with throughout the night. And then I can have progressive sleep deprivation where I, I take a little bit of sleep away, I take a little bit of sleep away, I take a little bit of sleep. So maybe I miss 15 minutes here. Tomorrow I, meet, I miss another 30. I lost an hour there. This all results in sleep debt. And the reality is, is that although you can start paying back sleep debt, it's like taking money from a loan shark. There is no quick way to pay it back, and it's going to hurt you really bad. <laughs> right. So what do you say to the people who don't sleep all week, and they say, I'm going to catch up on my sleep on the weekend? It's, True or false? Is it a real thing or not? It's not a real thing that you're going to be able to do it in a weekend. So the reality is it's not a one-to-one. -one. So if you think, oh, I, I lost two hours of sleep this week. I'm going to sleep an extra two hours. It's not. It doesn't work that way. It's actually a logarithmic repayment. You're probably going to need another 10 hours in order to pay back that too. Is there such a thing as too much sleep? So there is a such thing as too much sleep. Those are called hypersomnia disorders. Many times when we see a person having, quote unquote, too much sleep, it is generally a function of their either being they had chronic sleep deprivation and now they're sleeping 14 hours to try and catch up on sleep, right? Um, uh, another is their quality of sleep is horrible and so therefore they're wanting to sleep in an inappropriate time. And then the final is that their brain may actually be programmed to sleep more than what is appropriate. An example of that would be a condition called idiopathic hypersomnia. Individuals with this condition very frequently want to sleep greater than 11 hours of sleep, 11, okay. 12, 13. Is it anything 14. over 10? It's a red flag or what's the hour So range? it really depends on the age, right? So if I'm a, an elementary school kid, 10 hours would be a completely normal number of hours of sleep. But if I was sleeping 12, 13 hours, that would be very abnormal. If I'm an adult and I'm supposed to be sleeping seven to nine hours of sleep, I think greater than nine, I would already be going, why are you requiring that? Now, there are some people who are genetically long sleepers. And so maybe 10 hours is their sweet spot. It's like my partner can sleep. My partner, Matt, can sleep. Like he tries to get a solid eight to nine every night. Mm -hmm. Some weekends he might sleep 10 to 11. And I'm like, what are you, why are you still in bed? Yeah. Is that like a normal health thing? 
So sometimes that can be a sign. He's going to kill me, by the way, but go ahead. (laughs) So sometimes that can be a sign that even though he's getting eight hours during the week, which is a completely normal number of hours for an adult, that it may not be the best quality. And so there can be things, not just sleep apnea, but it can be like restless leg syndrome or periodic lip movement disorder or that there's something else that is fragmenting their sleep and not getting the quality. And so that effectively is also sleep depriving you. And so that can be I should say it's not all the time, but I notice like, and I'm always amazed. I'm like, how can you sleep that long? And he's always, I think that's somebody, I mean, my partner, Matt, even when I was working in television, getting up at midnight or two in the morning, mm-hmm. I was almost jealous of how much sleep he got because he was always diligent about getting that eight to nine hours Yeah. because he gave him, then he would be able to give his best self to everybody. Sure. Right. And there were sure. days where I would sleep six and I'm like, and you know, you have the caffeine and everything and you're like, yeah. fake it till I make it. Yes. But then inside, like if I get less than eight, I know you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, you're almost triggered by a lot of things, 100%. right? So things that would maybe set me off, you know, uh, in a different capacity, right? Like you're, you're like on edge and anxiety, yeah. right? And I think people going through huge career changes, um, how sleep is impacted. I know when I was thinking of just changing my life around and you and yeah. I had a discussion because I was struggling with sleep and I never had an issue. Yeah. And I worked with you and like some other professionals you put me in touch with about removing certain things from the bedroom. We talk about the sleep environment. Yeah. So what does the latest research say? Because I said, we didn't want to just make this podcast with like lower the temperature in yeah. room, do this. Let's talk about how can we make the best sleep happen? Yeah. So I think a lot of times when what you're talking about is that when people are saying, oh, I'm going to listen to this podcast or I'm going to listen to this, what what are the tips to get get better Mm -hmm. night's sleep? Many times people are referencing sleep hygiene, right? Which is that the the temperature of the environment, the darkness, the sound, the challenge is sleep hygiene has never, not in one research study ever shown that it fixes sleep problems, does not fix sleep problems. Okay. Sleep hygiene, the same as if I tell you brush your teeth, right? And you have a cavity. Is brushing your teeth going to make that cavity go away? No. No. That's because that's normal hygiene. It's a preventative strategy, right? Sleep hygiene is the same thing. Sleep hygiene is a preventative strategy from developing a sleep disorder. If you have difficulties with sleep, number one, the best thing that I tell people to do is journal about your sleep. The reason why is it now puts you in the driver's seat of really understanding What is your problem? Is your problem that I have difficulty falling asleep? I have difficulty staying asleep. I'm waking up not feeling refreshed. I'm having restless sleep. I'm snoring. I'm stopping breathing. I get discomfort in my arms or legs. I'm having lapses into sleep during the daytime. Those all tell me as a sleep doctor a very, very different story and a very different algorithm of how to help you. So the very first thing I would tell someone to do is journal about their sleep. If you want to use some high-tech equipment in order to also keep track of your sleep, please feel free to do so. But that really directs at what do we need to do to help you. Now, some things that I will tell people to do in order to optimize their sleep is really looking at things around stimulus control, being able to prepare your mind for that transition to sleep, right? So stimulus control is if you're a person who you know, this activates me, this certain activity activates me, checking my emails, being on a phone call with someone who's going to get me all hyped up, save that for the daytime. Keep it away from your bedtime. You are not kidding. And I literally, you're like preaching to the choir because I try to tell myself that, but I do fall into that trap. Sometimes you're like, well, let me check the email. And then it just ruins your night. A hundred percent because it, it's a rabbit hole. So you have to be mindful for you personally of what's your rabbit hole, right? And this is where journaling becomes really helpful. So a lot of people think like, oh, this is so foofy and granola or whatever. But the reality is, is that no, my goal as a medical professional is always to put the patient in a driver's seat to be able to then make me utilize my medical expertise for your personal expertise, right? That's the big mantra that I always tell people is that I'm an expert in the medicine. I'm an expert in the diseases and the treatments. I'm not an expert in your life. And so therefore, if you don't come to me equipped with what your particular issues are, you're going to get the wrong treatment. And so being able to empower people to say, how do you collect the information? So the information you want to collect is, what is my what is my bedtime routine? What do I do right before bed? What, what time am I getting into bed? How long is it taking me to fall asleep? Am I sleeping the full night through? Do I find that I'm waking up? If I am waking up, what am I doing? What's waking me up? What time am I waking up? How long does it take me to get out of bed? Am I setting my alarm at six? And then I also have 10 other alarms because I know it takes me 10 alarms for me to get out of bed, that by itself is a sign that there's a problem. Okay, you mentioned the alarm. I was getting into that. Should we set an alarm every day? What do you encourage your patients to do? Because some people are like, well, if you're getting enough sleep, you should just wake up naturally. Yeah, and so that's a big, I, I think that that comment by itself is is 
almost the basis of the stigma around sleep, right? Sleep is supposed to be a natural process. Why do I have to do all these things? So is eating, right? And we're in an obesity epidemic. 75% of adults in the United States have are overweight and obese, and 50% of them have tried to lose weight in the past year, right? So if eating is a natural process, and we can see a problem with that be so rampant, there's no reason why sleep also can't follow that same trajectory, right? And so it doesn't mean that you can't have attention or be mindful of habits, that will allow us to have better sleep. So what I generally will tell people is that our goal in order for you to have the best optimal sleep is really trying to keep a consistent schedule. So if your typical work week is I go to bed at nine and I wake up at five, you don't necessarily have to go to bed at nine and wake up at five on the weekend, but try to keep it within an hour. So if you wanna go to bed at 10 and wake up at six, the reason why is because when you start having these wide swings, it interferes with some of the biological processes that tell you to go to sleep the following night. So there's something specifically called your homeostatic sleep drive, where in order for me to fall asleep, it has to build up to a certain capacity to tell my brain, go to sleep. Go to sleep, open the sleep gate, allow that person to fall asleep. If I now am sleeping until noon, and I think that on Sunday, I'm sleeping until noon on Sunday, and I think I'm gonna go to bed at nine o'clock that night, my homeostatic sleep drive is going, I'm telling you a different story. Your brain ain't ready for this. Don't go lay in bed. And now you just create a dynamic for insomnia to develop. Because now I have this preconceived notion that 9 p.m. socially acceptable time for me to go to bed is the time I need to go lay down in bed. But my brain is going, you're nowhere near ready for that. Your homeostatic sleep drive isn't there. And so now I just lay okay. there and go. So for people who normally get up at 6 a.m. or 7 a.m., say five, six days a week, and then they're like, oh, tomorrow I'm going to sleep until noon, you're screwing yourself. Yeah, you really are. You're, you're, you're screwing yourself for that next night's sleep. So you might wake up and you go, she doesn't know what she's talking about. I felt great on Saturday when I slept mm -hmm. until 11. I had so all these great, I was able to do all these things. I felt so good. Da, da, da. Yeah. How did you sleep that night? And maybe it wasn't that night. Maybe it was the following night. Because typically what we see, and I see this all the time in my, my middle school and high school students, is that we generally see the most negative effect usually on Tuesday or Wednesday. And so we don't, don't see that necessarily on Monday it's so bad because they slept in until noon, they slept in until noon, and then on Sunday night they weren't able to go to bed until like 2 o'clock in the morning. They were able to get up and do their Monday. Now by Tuesday, they're hurting. They are hurting. So now that's when we're seeing their migraines are the worst. They're more likely to miss school, be late to school, be more irritable, get, get into trouble at school because they're being more defiant, yeah. et cetera. And so just being mindful that those changes in schedule, having that regular sleep-wake schedule, that by itself also is considered a sleep disorder. Wow. And you know, I always tell you, I'm so fascinated with just sleep in general and like gaming your sleep and getting better at it. Sure. Right. And we talked about wearables and now I think, cause you know how like the social media algorithm works. It feels like if you, if you think of this idea, you start getting the ads. Oh, hundred percent. hundred percent. We do that magic too. For people. <laughs> <laughs> but the question I have right now, I'm getting all these ads for ways like cooling mattresses or yeah. technology that you put over your mattress and, yeah. and, and they're all different. And some will measure your, uh, resting heart rate. I think it was your HRV, mm -hmm. right? Some will do all of that. It tracks your sleep and it can cool your mattress down to like 60 degrees. Sure. Thoughts on those kinds of things. So I think that um, uh, we're still working on the science to support whether or not they're worth the investment, right? So does that fall back into like sleep hygiene right now? There's no research that if you do some of these things, it'll improve your sleep. So, so I think that when we look at the use of sleep hygiene, for instance, or things like this, sleep hygiene by itself and these mattresses and things by themselves are unlikely to fix a problem. However, Sleep hygiene will be one of the tools we'll use in combination with cognitive behavioral therapy and stimulus control and all that. Because again, if you have a cavity, I'm not going to tell you stop brushing your teeth. The hygiene is still a good thing to do. Yeah. It's just not going to fix the problem. So saying that all of a sudden, if I give you a cooling mattress, that that's going to be your end all be all, that's going to be unlikely. Um, it might help women, for instance, who are have menopause and are having hot flashes, and that might help mitigate some of that. I get the meat sweats if I eat a lot before bed. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people get, I mean, food Food is really something that yeah. is is hugely influential to our yeah. sleep. So both the timing and the content of our food. And so, yeah, people very much can have very dysfunctional sleep, especially if they're eating a, like a high fat or a high caloric meal right before bed. Um, that's not an uncommon experience. All right. So what does the latest sleep research say about like 
you know, because there's so many things that are so mixed about eating close to bedtime. Sure. Right? Some people, that's all they have to do. Like, they crazy day, they get home, they got to eat and go to bed. Yeah. And unfortunately, I, I would say that that's not a horrible thing for the one-off, but I would say consistently, it's not a good thing. And part of the reason why consistently is not a good thing is because we now have evidence to demonstrate our timing of eating actually is a very, very important circadian cue. What does that mean? Circadian rhythm is our day-night rhythm. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when we are eating very very close to bedtime, it's giving cues to our brain that that's a wakefulness activity and that we should be shifting our bedtime further back, right? And so therefore, it is actually going to make it one harder for you to fall asleep. Now, other problems that you can experience with this is that when you're eating close to bedtime, we now are going to be laying flat. That makes it much more likely for food to reflux back up into our esophagus, experience things like um, uh, like acid reflux symptoms. Mm -hmm. Even if you're going, I don't get heartburn, I don't have any of those issues, but you're waking up frequently in the night, that very frequently can be a symptom of acid reflux. These types of things, like acid reflux, also have a bidirectional relationship with something like sleep apnea. The more I reflux, the more I have sleep apnea, the more I have sleep apnea, the more I have reflux. So those factors are really very important. Never mind the fact that, that when we're going to sleep, we now are in a lower metabolic state. So we're burning less calories. The worst thing you can do is eat a heavy meal right before you go to sleep because that is just a recipe for you to have a less than optimal body habit as your body type and be more likely not to utilize the calories you just took in. So what's the cutoff before bed? If you're eating a big boy meal. Yeah. So typically we do like for people to try and keep their, their meals l at least three to four hours prior to bedtime. The challenge is, is real life is a hard thing to get away from. I can say for myself, I'm a person, I work. You I have kids. I have kids. Mm -hmm. I'm getting home. Sometimes we're eating dinner and we're trying to do dinner at six o'clock. My kids' bedtime is eight. I'm not going to be giving them dinner at four o'clock in the afternoon. Like that's just unrealistic. So I really do try to frame those recommendations in a way that is going to be realistic that people can put in their lives. And so if you're a person who you know that you can't change the timing, change the content of what you're eating. Don't make dinner your heaviest meal of the day. Make that lunch. Um, Europe is probably onto something um, when they look at how they sleep and, and their timing of their, of their meals. Um, so they do some fragmentation of their sleep where they do their midday naps. Like you go to Spain, you can't go, you can't eat in the middle of the day um, because everyone is napping. Yeah. Um, but they also have an entire society built around their sleep-wake schedules. Yeah, you're not kidding. Because if you go to like Spain, I remember Sorrento, Italy, right? Mm -hmm. Why are the stores and restaurants closed? People yep. are napping. Your thoughts on napping. Good, bad, and how long if it's, if it's okay? Yeah. So napping all depends on the situation. So there are some people who we're going to recommend napping as that that has to be part and parcel of your life. Very frequently, people who have like shift work disorder, napping has to be part of your life in order for you to survive. People who have central disorders of hypersomnolence, things like narcolepsy, napping is a part of your life in order for you to really function. Um, uh, however, as I mentioned earlier, by the age of five, napping shouldn't be necessary anymore. So if you're seeing a reemergence of napping, the first question I'm asking is, are you getting the right duration, the right quality, the right timing of your sleep, or do you have a sleepiness disorder? Um, and so if you are a person who you know I'm working a job where I feel like I need this nap. If you need to nap 20 minutes, 20 or 30 minutes, the longer than that, you're going to eat into that thing I was talking about earlier, your homeostatic sleep drive. It's going to disrupt your ability to fall asleep later that night. This is a very common thing that I hear from moms when they have that toddler who now all of a sudden is having the bedtime resistance and they're still napping in the afternoon. It's because your toddler has outgrown that, that daytime nap. And that's why you're seeing that resistance at bedtime because they don't need a daytime nap anymore. They just need to consolidate everything at night. So it is it is important to utilize that. And the time that I will tell people definitely use, a, use an app is if you know you have to get behind the wheel, if you know you have to drive somewhere, driving while sleepy is the reaction time equivalent of driving while drunk. It also carries the same legal liability if you knowingly drive while sleepy. The only two things that have been proven to change your reaction time when sleepy is strategic napping, so taking that 20, 30 minute nap right before you're gonna need to drive, or strategic caffeine or a stimulant use if you have those prescribed. Next question, that was it, caffeine. When do you cut it off before bed? So you and why can, I'm gonna ask you this as a neurologist mm -hmm. too, why can some people literally drink it while they're sleeping and it doesn't impact it? My yeah. partner's one of them, I have to cut myself off maybe Gosh, afternoon, even if I go to bed at 8 o'clock, sure. he can drink a can of like crazy insane energy drink out like a light. 
Yeah. Why? How does this happen? So more and more that you talk about your partner, more I'm like, does he need to see me for a sleepiness? <laughs> just so I by the way, I hope Matt doesn't <laughs> listen to this podcast, by the way. But it's almost because it, it's going to... we're talking about him with so much love. Yeah, so totally. he's going to be totally okay. But we'll segue it into alcohol as well because I even know people who, sure. you know, in their 70s and they can have a glass of wine and go to bed, no issue. If I have a glass of wine, like it could be three hours next to sleep. I can't sleep. So let's unpack caffeine first, then alcohol. Yeah, sure. So first, how does caffeine work? So um, caffeine is adenosine block. So why is that important? So I kept referencing this thing called the homeostatic sleep drive. The thing that drives your build to wanting to go to sleep is actually the buildup of adenosine right? So where does that come from? Your brain's main energy source is something called adenosine triphosphate. When it gets utilized, it basically goes, here's some adenosine, here's some adenosine, here's some adenosine, here's some adenosine. So when you drink that caffeine, it's blocking that drive, that homeostatic drive to wanting you to go back to sleep. Got it. Right? Mm -hmm. So for most people, we're telling them to really try to avoid it. Pat, like if you're, for someone who has a normal sleep-wake cycle, past like three o'clock. Because if you are drinking caffeine past three o'clock, you're going to have- Would you say time. the window's six to eight hours before bed? I would think that would be reasonable. To cut yourself off. I think that's reasonable. I think eight hours might be a stretch because many people are, are going to um, uh, probably be able to get away with a little bit less than that. Mm -hmm. I'd probably go more into four to six hours than six to eight. Um, uh, now, why would some people be able to drink, drink, drink and it not touch them? Yeah. I'll tell you. When I, I know was, people, uh, espresso, drink yeah. it, go right to bed. I'll tell you, that was me as a resident. Why? Because I was chronically sleep deprived, right? So my homeostatic sleep drive was so up here that you could have gave me all the adenosine blockers in the world. It still didn't bring me down to a point where it would negatively affect my sleep because I was I was oversubscribed on the you need to go to sleep side, right? So it really wasn't changing my ability to fall asleep or stay asleep because of the fact that I already was so overinvested in needing to sleep. Alcohol. So alcohol is interesting because I, I, again, it's, it's like I reflect very frequently on when I was in my 20s and I could be out until four o'clock in the morning and, and have drinks and come home and I would sleep for a couple hours and it was a sound sleep and I would be up and I would be like, great, right? And this is a part of how society starts to develop these mindsets of like, I can get away with less sleep and alcohol doesn't negatively affect me, et cetera. The reality is, is that alcohol is very interesting because although it's a sedative, right? It puts people to sleep because it's a CNS depressant. It severely fragments your sleep. Um, and also depending on your frequency and amount of use, it can have varying effects. So we know, for instance, for people who use it very frequently to put them to sleep, when they stop it, it actually causes a very severe rebound insomnia, right? Which then creates this vicious cycle. Um, uh, but it really is something that um, we see as we get older, the same processes that we were talking about earlier, where our sleep now becomes, we require less sleep. It's more, it's lighter sleep. It's more fragmented sleep. We now insert something like alcohol. We feel the effects of it a lot worse, right? Where if I'm a younger person, the characteristics of my sleep protect me more from the negative impacts. So it's not that it's not doing the same thing. It's just that I'm, I'm more insulated from feeling those impacts when I'm younger than when I'm, when I'm older. Wow. But would you still recommend the four to six hours before bed? I mean, if you are going to have a drink? Cause... Yeah, I mean, I think I think it really depends on how much you're drinking as well. So yeah. if you're going to have a glass of wine with dinner, most people, they'll do fine. But if you're a person who you go, doesn't matter if I have only one glass of wine with dinner, Check my sleep is yeah. so... You didn't have to choose your battles. Is the wine worth it or is your sleep yeah. worth it? And if, you're, if the sleep is worth it, then think about other activities. Maybe it's a brunch you're going to instead. <laughs> sleep aids. So it's interesting in terms of sleep aids, we see um, uh, that over-the-counter sleep aids is a multi-million dollar market. Over $120 million a year is spent on over-the-counter sleep aids. These include things like melatonin, Benadryl, um, your 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 like kind of all these other types of um, things. Now, with that stated, I recommend that if you are reaching for an over-the-counter sleep aid, for you to talk to your doctor beforehand. The reason why is because we're also seeing people grossly misusing these, and not all of them are benign. Um, things like that are containing things like Benadryl or diphenhydramine, those actually can be lethal, taking too much of them. We also see tolerance, so people have to take more and more to feel the same effect. This past year, we saw a 600% increase in poison control calls over the use of increasing doses of melatonin. So we're a society wow. where if a little bit works and a lot of it really must work a lot better. So if you're finding that you need a sleep aid and you're needing a sleep aid chronically, you have a sleep problem and you need to talk to a sleep doctor. So the bottom line, if you're reaching for a sleep aid, you got to talk to your primary care doctor because there could be some underlying issues. Mm -hmm. All right. 
big question, medical marijuana, right? Everyone's like, this is more natural. Some people take it to help shut off anxiety at night, shut their mind off at night, and improve their sleep. What's the research say about it? Sure. So we definitely see this increasing use across the country. And so it, what's interesting is that we're not only seeing medical marijuana, but people also being able to access it even at the gas station, right? Um, so in New York, you can be able to pick up some of the chocolates or whatever else. Now, with that said, when we're looking at the research around use of marijuana, it's a little bit dirty research. The reason why is because when you think about even medical marijuana or what people use recreationally, Product A is not the same as product B. There's varying amounts of the cannabidiol that's in it as well as the THC. Those can have different effects on what our sleep is. However, if I were to summarize what we know at this point or what we think we know about this point is that the occasional acute user, meaning that I'm not, depend I'm not dependent on it for me to fall asleep, I'm having a period where I'm having difficulty falling asleep, there is some evidence to show that it may reduce your sleep latency and make it easier for you to fall asleep maybe perhaps increase the amount of time that you're sleeping. Now, that creates a slippery slope, right? Because if I fall asleep easier, getting a little bit more sleep, this must be a good thing. I start using it more chronically. What we now see, though, when people are using it chronically is that we start to see the opposite effect. We start to see that it actually causes more fragmentation of sleep. So kind of a similar story to what we talked about with alcohol, right? The occasional I fall asleep easier, so now I'm going to make it more of a chronic habit. I now see the same thing fall apart. We're starting to see a similar story. The other challenge is that this slippery slopes gets even more uh, steep, where when I abruptly stop it, it causes a very, very severe rebound insomnia. And so because of that, what do I do? I reach back for it, right? And so I keep putting myself into that cycle. So I think we still um, need a lot more research to understand the roles. We now know that medically, there are some FDA-approved versions of um, the cannabidiol component. We need to further study things like that to be able to say this is the exact mechanisms and this is the exact components in order to say this is how I'd prescribe or it is how I'd use it. I do very commonly see people using it to help in self-medicating things like anxiety and otherwise. And so that's not treating a sleep disorder. It's treating your anxiety that's preventing you from sleep. And in that capacity, that might be the right solution for you. But we then need to look at the downstream effects of do you see further fragmentation or worsening your sleep? Because that now can create this driver of your anxiety and spiraling again. And I have a few more questions sure. before I let you go, because I was like, so I could talk to you all day about sleep. This is sure. fascinating stuff. When it comes to everyone says, you know, oh, it's a seven to nine hours, right? If you wake up before your alarm, mm -hmm. right? Because we're all in cycles. What do we sleep sure. in 90 minute cycles? Like we, Usually and that 90 to 120 minutes. Yeah. And that takes us into what stage of sleep? So usually every 90 to 120 minutes, we'll go into REM sleep. Okay. And then you kind of come back up from it, right? Mm -hmm. Is that right? And then ultimately go back down. So if you come back up and you're like, my alarm's going to go off in a half hour, what's your advice as a sleep expert? Just get up or try to get that extra 30 minutes? So it, for me personally, I generally will tell you, if you woke up and you're feeling good, get out of bed. So the reason why is that you're better off seizing the day and just taking advantage of the fact that you woke up naturally and are feeling energized. When you go back and you try to do that extra 30 minutes, you now are risking the chance of going into slow wave sleep or, or our deepest stage of sleep. When you try to wake up out of that stage, it's like getting hit by a truck. That's where you're trying to wake the dead, right? And so many parents who might be listening to this or watching this are going, yeah, that's my teenager every day, right? <laughs> and so um, I generally will tell people to do that. Why? Again, you're now also going to be capitalizing on um, that homeostatic sleep drive. You're building that up more. And so your next night's sleep is going to be that much easier for you to fall asleep. Wow. I just, and I think be, the other thing is when we talk about sleep and gaming it and like making sure you're, you're feeling your best, right? Mm -hmm. So you can deliver your full self 100%. as we talked about, because the less sleep you get, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, which I love how you said that you're giving a lesser version of yourself to mm -hmm. yourself and other people. Yeah. But you know, I feel like is really dialing into sleep more than ever now. I mean, we talked about the founder of Amazon, right? Who's bringing light to this, but for years, athletes. Yes. So if you're looking to improve your squat at the gym, right? Yep. Or just strength. How does sleep play a role with it? It's sort of like your superpower. Yeah. So um, you're 100% correct. So we now know that if you're a professional athlete, an Olympic athlete, there's a sleep doctor who now is a part of your coaching squad. And the reason why is because that is your competitive edge. Um, it can be the difference between you placing gold and not placing at all, you winning the World Series versus you striking out. Um, and this is because of the fact that when you're optimizing your sleep, you are optimizing your judgment 
you're optimizing your reaction time, you're optimizing your speed. And so interestingly, um, as a part of Geisinger, I've developed a program called Wake Up and Learn. It's a school-based sleep education and screening program. Um, with that, we actually uh, purchased these products called Blaze Pods, which measure speed and accuracy. We've partnered with um, Bucknell University, and we've worked with some of their athletic teams utilizing those. We're going to be start utilizing them with some of our, our, our high school student athletes. Um, and uh, some of the games that we've developed is that yes we can do your speed and accuracy we also have goggles that you can put on that simulate you being drowsy so you can see the before and after of how that impacts you so it really is truly the competitive edge and you can quote multiple uh, professional athletes LeBron James, Michael Phelps, there's tons of basketball players, football players, tennis players who will say that sleep is the critical component of their optimal performance. I love that I just like after hearing all of this, right, it makes you realize just just how important sleep is. One hundred percent. With the latest research, right, the misconceptions out there that it's all like, oh, it's just the environment. It's more than that. It's yeah. looking at the underlying problems. If you're reaching for a sleep aid, you got to talk to somebody. If there's ongoing snoring, it's not necessarily a normal thing yeah. to get looked at. Any final thoughts or takeaways that you want people to get out of this when it comes to literally rocking your sleep? Well, I think that one of the most important things that I generally will tell people is that a great night's sleep starts with the moment that you open your eyes. So what you do in your day directs how great you sleep. It's, it is intimately linked and how you sleep dictates how your day is. And so us in the field of medicine have done a horrible job and a terrible disservice to most people for years by only asking you about your day and not talking to you about your sleep. And so we've conditioned a lot of people to not thinking it's as important as everything they're getting done in the day. The reality is it's not a period of inactivity that's non-contributory. It is a critical component to you being your best version of you. And so making sure that you're taking advantage of every single second to be that best version. And are you amazed that I feel like sleep science is still just heating up? Oh, it is just heating up. You have to remember, we're one of the youngest fields in medicine, only established in the 1970s. So we only learned about the stages of sleep in the 19, basically EEG was developed in the 20s, and we started learning about the stages of sleep between the 1940s and 50s. Before that, we truly believed that it was a, it was non-contributory and that we just didn't do anything and break shut off yeah and when we think of sleep science you were always on top of this and you were always putting out some of the latest research different conditions people might be dealing 100%. with and some great tips to help them how do people follow you sure to keep tabs on that because you speak all over the world regarding sleep yeah so they can either follow me on any of my social media handles it's damn good sleep dr amory morris that's what the damn stands for but we also have a podcast that's going to be coming on um it's called sleeping around the podcast keeping it between sleep friends i'm going to definitely be having you on it oh i'm in i mean what do we do do we get all like snuggle snuggle on like a little couch or like <laughs> well if you would like that we can get you some snuggies okay we just got them. weird <laughs> Just got weird. No, but ultimately, too, because you're based in Danville, Pennsylvania. 100%. And that's where you, as a pediatric sleep specialist, work with parents really from all over the country who are mm -hmm. struggling with stuff. So people can connect with you through Geisinger. Yes. And obviously follow you on your social channels at... Damn Good Sleep. I love that. And I never knew it was over. I, I Now I'm putting it together with your initials. Yep. I just thought it was like, I'm getting a damn good sleep tonight. Exactly. Well, you are, but it's Dr. Amory Morris, and that's the reason why. <laughs> I love it. And the one and only Dr. Amory Morris, thank you so much for being here. Seriously, you thank are you. so on top of your game. Thank you. When I talk to you, it, it gets me super jacked up. It's funny. I get really pumped up to sleep when I talk to you, <laughs> but not in a way where I'm like, because you're just so dialed into everything. Thank and you. I see you do your thing and I follow you on social media and you drop these knowledge bomb. And I'm like, we just got to talk to her. And I know we can, there's a million other things we could talk about. Well, I'm going to have to come back up. I love it. So thanks again so much. Awesome. Thank you for having me. I'm going to awesome. go get that 20 minute nap. No, okay. <laughs> You might need it. <laughs> I love it. You are the best. Thanks for everything. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to this edition of The Ryan Lecky Show. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel to see more episodes. Comment. Let us know what you thought. We appreciate you. I'll see you soon.